Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 15 of The Korean War. Last time we saw how the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China engaged in a genuine race to launch one another's policy end goal. Despite lacking the key equipment, Mao Zedong was determined to invade Taiwan before the Korean War broke out, no matter what it cost him. On the other hand, Stalin was keenly aware that if Mao captured Taiwan before the Korean War could be ignited, then Moscow would lose a major point of pressure from which Beijing could be coerced. Furthermore, as Moscow well knew, the loss of Taiwan would mean the loss of the American friction in the Sino-American relationship. Since Taiwan and Chiang Kai-shek remained sensitive issues, the elimination of either of them would surely pave the way to peaceful relations in the future, and also lessen Mao's dependence upon the USSR. Such an outcome, mostly because it eliminated Mao's problems, was intolerable for Stalin to accept. 
and so he brought his plot to plunge a troubled peninsula into war for his own ends, with horrific consequences for all involved. In the previous episodes, we've learned the extent to which Kim Il-sung and Stalin were connected, and in the next two episodes, we'll examine the other side of the border, as the American relationship with the South and Washington's stark treatment of Seoul during this time period spoke to a sinister, perhaps even conspiratorial motive, which none of those uninformed officials at the time could have believed. The voluntary ignorance of the Truman administration was about to make its presence felt, as such public antipathy contributed towards that juicy end goal of luring the North Koreans in and generating a costly war of attrition. For those of you that are wondering, do not worry. For episodes 18, 19 and 20, we will be looking at the Koreans themselves in more detail. But without any further ado for now, I'm going to take you to spring 1950. Since the song of the week this week is in actual fact the theme song of one of the parts of 1956, The Eventful Year, it is only appropriate to tell you that this week's song of the week is brought to you by 1956, The Eventful Year. Doesn't that work out very, very nicely indeed? The song itself is a pretty catchy tune altogether. It is in fact a Hungarian song in origin and was covered several times before Paul Weidman and his band covered it in 1936. It is called Gloomy Sunday and, well, it kind of captures the entire theme of the first part of 1956, for the Hungarians that is. For those of you that don't know, 1956 is split into two parts. The first part is looking at the Soviet aspects of 1956, the second part is looking at the Western aspects, so pretty much the Suez Crisis, but from the British perspective. Because we like the British perspective, don't we? Because it is a Hungarian song in origin and it refers in many respects to tragic scenes that were going down in Hungary in the early 1930s, it felt only appropriate to use this song again for tragic events that were going down in Hungary in the 1950s. Hungary, much like Poland, doesn't do very well in the 20th century, but that does not mean that it is not a story full of very interesting, fascinating characters, inspiring resistance and fascinating events. So I hope you'll join me for 1956, the eventful year. If you guys would like to listen to the episodes for free, then make sure to check out the samples in the separate feed for those episodes. But if you'd like to access them all in full, it only costs a fiver. And if you were to do that, I would be eternally grateful. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and start listening to 1956, the eventful year today. When you're listening to this right now, if you're listening to this on the day that it came out, that is, then already there are six episodes of 1956 out there. So what are you waiting for? Head on over patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails start listening to 1956 the eventful year today so yes the song of the week this week is gloomy sunday by paul whiteman i hope you enjoy it guys we'll be back with episode 15 of the korean war Wow. 
flowers will never awaken you Not where the black coach of sorrow has taken you Angels have no thought of ever returning you Would they be angry if I thought of joining you? Gloomy Sunday Gloomy Sunday with shadows I spend it all My heart and I have decided to end it all Candles and prayers that are sad, I know. Let them not weep, let them know that I'm glad to go. Death is no dream, for in death I'm caressing you. With the last breath of my soul, I'll be blessing you. Gloomy Sunday. Philip Jessup was a busy man. Acquiring the post of ambassador-at-large for the United States government in 1949, Jessup had made his way in January 1950 to the Republic of Korea as part of a tour of East Asia that had begun the previous October. A graduate of Columbia and of Yale University, Jessup was a respected figure in American diplomacy and had served on several commissions representing the United States, including the UN Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, or otherwise known as UNRWA, in 1943, and the UN Monetary and Financial Conference in 1944, and as a member of the American delegation to the UN in San Francisco in 1945. In 1947, Philip Jessup was the US representative to the United Nations Committee on the Codification of International Law, which suited him since his degrees were all in law and international law especially. From 1948 to 52, he was prolific in several roles in the United Nations. As a U.S. representative to the General Assembly for the second, third, and fourth special sessions, as deputy U.S. representative to the Interim Committee of the General Assembly and Security Council, and deputy chief of the U.S. Mission to the United Nations. In the future, Jessup would be selected to serve as a judge on the International Court of Justice in The Hague, where he would stand from 1961 to 1970. This brief biography of Philip Jessup should go to show that few figures in American diplomacy or international law could boast of such a glittering career, or could boast of being trusted with such high-profile tasks as Jessup was. Jessup was also personally recommended by President Truman to sit as America's delegate to the UN in 1951, yet in that case he had to find a workaround because the Senate wouldn't approve it. Why wouldn't the Senate approve it, you may ask, since Jessup had demonstrated a great ability to get the job done and represent America abroad? Well, one can look no further than the person of Joseph McCarthy. Yes, that's right, McCarthyism has finally invaded our story. Philip Jessup, as it happened, was one of nine public figures blacklisted by McCarthy in the Tidings Committee, which itself formed one of many parts of the Red Scare. Alger Hiss, arguably one of the most famous persons or infamous persons to be nabbed by McCarthy's witch hunt, 
had worked with Jessup in the past, as Hiss had led the delegation to the UN in 1945, which Jessup had served on. This, among many other suspicious activities, were enough to seriously damage Jessup's reputation. The event launched the political career, though, not merely of McCarthy, but also of Richard Nixon. The Red Scare and the unfortunate American reaction to the terrifying image of communism and its inescapable presence are not topics that we really have time to get into here, since McCarthyism can itself form a podcast all on its own. For his part, though, Jessup had to return from Pakistan in May 1950 to answer the charges put forward by McCarthy, and he would certainly have regarded the whole affair as one of immense annoyance and inconvenience since it interfered in his work abroad. Jessup, as we have seen, was a busy man, but in fact, his stay in South Korea lasted only four days, between the 11th and 14th of January 1950, and only a few days after he left. Dean Acheson's speech was released in its doctored form to the media in South Korea. Dean Acheson's speech to the National Press Club, if you can remember that one that was intended to draw the Chinese in, but in actual fact was so doctored and manipulated by the media that it ended up excluding South Korea, and you remember the story, we don't need to go into it here, but suffice to say, the release of this speech erased any goodwill that Jessup may have fostered with Sing Man Rhee, the South Korean president. You see, Jessup's tour of South Korea took him to the demilitarized zone along the 38th parallel, to the barracks of active South Korean soldiers, and to the HQ of General Lynn Roberts. And remember Lynn Roberts because he's an important guy. He was the chief of the Korean Military Advisory Group, otherwise known as KMAG. So it would really benefit you guys if you could remember in future episodes, and don't worry, I will remind you, but General Lynn Roberts and KMAG, the Korean Military Advisory Group, are pretty darn important. My point here is, even while Jessup travelled to these places, met these people, and noted the positives and negatives about the South Korean position, he was utterly powerless in the end to do anything to change the manifest deficiencies that were present in South Korea. By the time he had left, wheels were already turning, and by the time his reports and recommendations for greater investment and attention to be paid to South Korea were properly digested at the end of the month, President Truman had begun to effect a fundamental change in America's policy towards South Korea. Where once Seoul had been a resolute if troubled capital of American interests in Asia, second only to Tokyo, by the time Jessup left for New Asian pastures, the country had been reduced to that of a goat tethered to a post, with the sole intention being to trap the tigers which came to feast. Since Jessup's trip occurred in the twilight era of American support of South Korea, Jessup's observations on the ground proved very interesting. Commenting on the high morale of the South Korean troops and of the positive work done by the Korean Military Advisory Group, KMAG, don't forget them, Jessup was still quick to comment on the technological deficiencies of the South Korean army. He also noted their inherent lack of proper artillery, planes, tanks, or strong defensive positions. Also remember these impressions, guys, because these impressions were to remain unchanged in the reports sent home by General Lynn Roberts or the American ambassador in Korea, John J. Mucho, for the next six months. The only differences between Jessup's reports and John J. Mucho's reports was the fact that the American ambassador to Korea noted a drop in the morale of Syngman Rhee's soldiery, 
And if you'll remember, one of the only good things that Jessup had noted about South Korea's military was that it had good morale. According to the American ambassador, this was not the case. But Jessup's messages home to Washington resembled a pattern which was to be repeated right up until the outbreak of the Korean War on the 25th of June. Following Jessup's cables home and a subsequent vote on an aid bill for South Korea immediately after in mid to late January, Acheson fought for South Korean security for what would prove to be the final time. Even more interestingly, when the amended Korean aid bill did pass through the House of Representatives on the 9th of February 1950, it contained a new provision for the delivery of aid not merely to South Korea, but also to Chiang Kai-shek's regime in Taiwan. The first public signal that something had changed in Washington had been made. Consider the fact that it was only on the 5th of January that President Truman had declared the intention of his administration to terminate military assistance to Taiwan in the hope that it would appease Mao Zedong. Here he was a month later though approving the provision of aid to Taiwan. We now know of course that in the space of that month many things had happened to shake American foreign policy to its core. The Sino-Soviet Treaty had been learned of, Soviet approval for a North Korean strike at the south of Korea may well have been intercepted, and the cumulative impact of several setbacks in Asia had all served to change the American outlook on the world. Richard C. Thornton noted how the additional public storm created by Senator McCarthy intertwined with this alteration in American foreign policy when he wrote that, The three weeks between the bill's defeat and resurrection spanned the period when the United States changed strategy and served to divert attention away from that crucial decision. Also at this time in early February, Senator Joseph McCarthy began to publicise claims of communists in the government, particularly in the State Department, which precipitated Senate hearings and further muddled public perceptions. During this same period, on the 31st of January, President Truman secretly authorised the formulation of a new strategy, NSC-68. That strategy would, of course, incorporate Taiwan and South Korea into the United States defense perimeter in the Western Pacific, but that step would not be taken publicly until after war erupted on the Korean Peninsula. Washington was still tied to some commitments to South Korea that it had made in previous months. Sorry to keep throwing all these names at you, but one of these commitments was referred to as the Mutual Defense Assistance Program, or MDA, and it was approved in October 1949. This was different to the Korean Military Advisory Group, or KMAG, that we encountered earlier, mostly because the Mutual Defense Assistance Program didn't just address South Korean defense, it also applied to a bunch of countries, including the Philippines and Iran, and approved a lump of funding for all of them, without specifying how much each country would receive. Now this point would prove especially important and convenient later on for Truman's government because although over 27 million dollars had been approved for the mutual defense assistance program, South Korea's share was never explicitly stated in the agreement. So from February 1950, Acheson was able to effect a kind of workaround. Initially expecting the sum to go to South Korea more than any other state since this was the country most in need considering the circumstances, Acheson had planned following NSC-68 to attribute only $10 million of this sum to South Korea. Immediately, the uninformed General Lynn Roberts of KMAG and Ambassador Mucho objected, and Roberts forwarded to Mucho his detailed recommendations for the ambassador to share with Washington. 
Finding a loophole in the Mutual Defense Assistance Program, Lynn Roberts recommended that some additional $10 million, on top of the already existing $10 million in aid, be provided. Leaving no room for imagination on where this money would go, General Roberts, who was well informed on the ground in South Korea to know where the deficiencies lay, recommended $4.5 million for the proper provision of equipment to the South Korean Army, $3.9 million for the creation and supply of an adequate South Korean Air Force, and $1.3 million for the supply of coastal patrol boats in South Korea, which would prevent any infiltration along the long coastline from North Korean insurgents, which had occurred in the past. This was a well-researched and sensible report from General Lynn Roberts, and it also revealed a theme which was to be commonplace in the months to come. This theme being that there were simply too many soldiers for the equipment that was available, and this equipment, be it in small arms, ammunition or vehicles, became worn out far quicker than was customary because it was being so overused and shared between so many soldiers. The remedy for this problem and the chronic shortages it created was to either properly kit out all 65,000 South Korean soldiers from the outset, or to cut the South Korean army from 65,000 to 50,000 men, and to at least properly supply that latter number. Yet, as Dean Acheson's complete ignoring of General Roberts's recommendations nine days later demonstrated, by mid-February 1950, the US State Department, and at least those in the know of NSC-68, were not interested in empowering the South Korean armed forces, Instead, the strategy was to weaken them as much as possible, but to leave them in such a condition that they could still at least hold some portion of the country in the event of war. For those of you wondering how the Americans planned to weaken South Korea, just enough and not too much, in other words, finding that balance between making the South Koreans too weak that the North Koreans would just roll over them, but making them just weak enough that they could hold on but not really fight back and thus necessitate intervention from the United Nations, Stay tuned. As time would show, this dedication to ignoring the professional military recommendations of Roberts, as well as the pleas of Ambassador Mucho, would have a dire consequences. In the final month of peace, as we know, Stalin began supplying North Korea with T-34 tanks, 150 of them, in fact. Because Atchison's predictions allowed for a North Korean advance of some measure, one may think that this only aided the United States' plans. Yet, the sudden appearance of these tanks and the knowledge that Washington had done absolutely nothing to prepare South Korea for any kind of tank battles aroused fears among those supporters of NSC-68 that, far from a controlled advance, North Korea may well push the South Korean government into the sea in a lightning advance before the United States could even properly intervene. There was a fine line, as Acheson and his colleagues discovered to their near horror in May 1950, between serving South Korea up as an attractive piece of bait to the North Korean regime, and making that bait so attractive and tasty that they forgot South Korea was supposed to defend itself, at least to some extent. We will come to this discovery in the next episode, but for now, let's see how Dean Acheson planned to create in South Korea an attractive piece of bait for the North. While Acheson didn't address many aspects of General Roberts's request for $10 million more in aid, he did manage to reply to the General and Ambassador Mucho with a request of his own. Apparently, Acheson wasn't convinced by Roberts's figures and wanted to know how Seoul would apportion spending for the total to come to such a high number in defence. On the surface, this request may seem reasonable, and Acheson was all about things appearing kosher on the surface. Yet in reality, 
Atchison knew full well that he was questioning the judgments of those men like Roberts who were far better positioned than he was to give an accurate picture of events. General Roberts of K-Mag had no reason to conflate these figures, and Atchison certainly understood that the figures were probably accurate, since Roberts, after all, was a consummate professional. Yet Atchison also understood that he needed to stall for time, and by effectively requesting that the US staff in South Korea double-check their figures, he was ensuring that any notions of additional aid to that country could be delayed until this more detailed examination request by Atchison was fulfilled. One theme which also began to emerge at this point, in mid-March 1950, was Atchison's use of a handy excuse for why he couldn't grant a load of military assistance to South Korea. Inflation, Atchison claimed, was rife in South Korea. Noting that the South Korean government was experiencing something of a deficit in its expenditure versus income, Atchison represented his perspective to the South Korean charge aid affair, who in turn managed to wrest from the South Korean defence chief a commitment not to spend a penny on related military institutions like the Youth or Reserve Corps of the South Korean Army. Yet, the charge d'affaires did note that the South Korean government does not recognise the grave consequences of continued deficit spending. And he repeated Syngman Rhee's plea to correct the impression that there was a financial crisis in South Korea. Deficit spending, as Dean Acheson well knew, did not automatically lead either to a recession or to inflation, so long as the economy remained stable. Yet, Acheson latched onto the idea of inflation, and he would use it as his sword and shield to parry and block any mentions of increased expenditure in South Korea, until, by May, he was forced to ignore his own protestations in light of the news that large columns of tanks were massing on the 38th parallel, and Syngman Rhee's weakened administration had nothing to counter them with. There did seem some cause for positivity when the Far East Economic Assistance Act was voted through in early March 1950, providing in the process $60 million in aid for South Korea. But where did this act come from when the Americans were trying to not spend any money on South Korea? Well, this act was in fact the culmination of a policy from the previous year, and Atchison went along with it so as to not arouse any suspicions. Rather than deliver the desperately needed funds to beef up the South Korean military though, Acheson determined to stall once again. He communicated the results of a committee of nine top US personnel who had met on the 15th of March and who had collectively condemned the authoritarian style of Rhee's rule and of the financial crisis which loomed over the country. These nine persons, predictably enough, were all clued in on NSC 68 in some way, and they understood what the next phase of American foreign policy would entail. Some had put forward the belief in that committee that Simon Rhee might be more compliant with our wishes if he were made to feel a little more uncertain about US support. And it was added that Rhee's strongest weapon is his knowledge that the US could not let the OROK fall without incurring the greatest political repercussions. If the present trend continued very long, the time might come when the lesser of two evils would be to cut South Korea loose and run the risk of incurring such consequences. This working group was therefore tasked with making it seem as though they were not in fact dependent upon South Korea for a foothold in Asia, and that if Rhee's government proved too troublesome or disobedient, then they would be very willing to abandon Seoul to its fate. Finding any excuse to abandon an ill-behaved regime rather than let that regime fall to an invasion under the watch of the United States was seen as the lesser of two evils, yet 
It is highly unlikely that the findings of this working group were designed to do anything more than pressure Syngman Rhee to reduce defensive spending and to stop asking America for more aid. America didn't want to give South Korea aid, of course, because Acheson wanted, in line with NSC-68, to make South Korea as vulnerable as was possible without totally endangering the American position there. Only by clawing back the ground that had been lost in the conflict that would follow could the Truman administration gain support for its Herculean defense budget increases. Rhee's insistence that what he needed was more US dollars to spend on defense complicated this new policy aim and so these veiled and not-so-veiled threats were hoped to get him to back off. But Rhee did not back off. Instead, having been made aware of the facts of the Japanese occupation, Rhee knew that the Americans were in the process of junking their now obsolete air force in Japan. These F-51 fighter jets, Rhee urged, should be used to plug the gap between the South and North's air force, since if they were going to be junked anyway, what was the harm? South Korea would provide the pilots and support the planes from here on in. All America had to do was not put them in the dumpster and hand them over to its Korean ally instead. Yet, as Dean Acheson noted, such a handover, Mr. Rhee, was not so simple. Delaying his response to the actual issue at hand, Dean Acheson feigned incredulity and insult at Rhee's supposedly blunt and repeated demonstrations of his undemocratic tendencies and of his ignorance of the economic situation in his own country. In a request which would take effect within a month, Acheson also noted that Ambassador Mucho should return to Washington in protest of your government's concern over the inflationary situation. Ambassador Mucho would have been given pause for thought by Acheson's reply, but of greater importance were the messages sent by the Chief Administrator of the Economic Cooperation Agency to President Rhee. The Economic Cooperation Agency, because we haven't been introduced to enough organisations just yet, was charged with administering and controlling aid to those countries where the United States' monies had been directed. And while he had this authority, the Chief Administrator, Paul Hoffman, was in a position to parrot his superiors' claims to the situation in South Korea about terrible inflation and Rhee's rampant ignorance of it. In a scathing letter to the President of South Korea, don't forget, Hoffman, himself a mere civil servant, wrote the following letter on the 27th of March, 1950, saying, The appraisal of the present economic situation in the Republic of Korea which your letter sets forth is invalid and the optimism which the letter seems to reflect is unwarranted. Unless tax revenues are sharply increased and expenditures are drastically reduced, prices will continue to rise, probably at an accelerating rate. I can hardly believe that the true nature of the situation is not known to you. I am therefore impelled to raise with you the question of whether your government had a real intention to deal with the problem of inflation. Unless I am convinced, within a fortnight, that immediate effort has been made to control inflation, I must consider the advisability of requesting a lesser sum from the Appropriations Committee. Similarly, I must further review the request which the Economic Cooperation Agency is making for Korean aid during the fiscal year 1950-51. Ouch. President Rhee was certainly not accustomed to being spoken to like that, and he can't have liked what he was hearing from his supposed allies in Washington. Knowing full well that no such inflation existed, and further angered by the fact that Spending in deficit occurred all the time, and of course was occurring in Washington at that very moment. Rhee appealed to Ambassador Mucho 
about the whole experience. After considering carefully his reply to Dean Acheson on the 29th of March, Mucho did his best to represent the good and bad of the South Korean situation in as balanced a manner as he could, and he pointed to the quite reasonable progress already made in transforming South Korea from a Japanese backwater to a stable and viable state in its own right. Mucho objected to the proposal of Acheson which would make a statement declaring the intransigence of the Seoul government, and he alluded to the new agricultural policy, government subsidies program and a balanced budget in the fiscal year of 1950-51 as proof of Ri's commitment to maintain a stable South Korean society. Furthermore, Mucho added that the elections in late May 1950 would improve Ri's image and standing in the country. Acheson's reply on the 31st of March commended Mucho's efforts, but underlined Washington's concern about the inflationary situation yet again. In any case, Acheson indicated that the Korean ambassador to the United States would be getting an earful when he stopped by the State Department before he left for a tour of Australasia, and that Acheson would personally put forth his views for that Korean figure at that time. Unfortunately for the Republic of Korea, on the 1st of April, Mucho innocently sent word of a disturbing new development in South Korea. Those planned elections under the re-regime were now in jeopardy, as the president was threatening to delay them until November 1950, unless the South Korean Assembly approved the new budget. Acheson leapt at this opportunity to use this new ammunition, and he handed it to his subordinate when Ambassador Chang of South Korea arrived at the State Department on the 3rd of April. Acheson, it seemed, had more important things to do than meet with the Korean ambassador, so he pawned the duty off to Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk was a rising star in the State Department, and he was the Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs in his own right. When Chang and Dean Rusk met on the 3rd of April, Rusk was able to present a grim picture for the naive Korean. The twin crimes of apparent rampant inflation and undemocratic tendencies were laid at Chang's door, yet surprisingly, perhaps in Rusk's mind, Chang then switched to his own agenda and requested that the United States extend its defensive line in Asia to South Korea. This, of course, was a reference to the speech that Acheson had made in the National Press Club in January, which had seemed to leave out the Korean Peninsula altogether. Rusk conveniently declared at this question that this was not a subject which I am in a position to discuss and he cautioned Ambassador Chang against putting too much faith in what he read in the newspapers by pointing out that the so-called defensive line was an actual fact and expression of the places that the United States held firm military commitments to rather than any kind of front line against communism. The convenience of being able to blame the media for their interpretation of Dean Acheson's speech to the National Press Club back in January was thus made clear. But Ambassador Chang didn't give up easily, and he declared, The importance to which the Korean government and people attached to their apparent exclusion for the defensive plans of the United States. But Dean Rusk retorted with the somewhat ironic note that, The inference that the United States had decided to abandon the Republic of Korea to its enemies was scarcely warranted in the light of the substantial material and political support which we have furnished and were furnishing. At this point, Rusk's peer, sitting in the corner of the room, jumped into the conversation and explained that 
It had been the carefully considered judgment of this government that the most efficacious means of defending against communist expansion was to bring about the creation in South Korea of a strong, self-reliant Korean government, and that it was to that end that our policy in Korea continued to be directed. Seeing that he was basically talking to a brick wall at this moment, Ambassador Chang changed the subject, and then went on his merry way. On the 13th of April, Acheson finally replied to Ambassador Mucho's request on Rhee's behalf for the junked planes leaving Japanese service. The Department of Defence, Acheson explained, had pointed out that any notion of a Korean Air Force went against the provisions of NSC 8-2, which had been drafted in early 1949, by the way, and which the State Department certainly no longer paid any heed to. Not only that, but Acheson communicated that in the Department of Defense's view, he also noted its conclusion that There appears to be no military necessity for an increase in the program of NSC 8-2. The breathtaking ignorance of the clear military realities by this point, and the fact that Acheson knew full well that North Korea was being greatly inflated by the Soviet shipments of arms and weapons, paints a damning picture. Acheson then claimed that the whole question of aid to the Republic of Korea will be reviewed with Ambassador Mucho upon his arrival in Washington within the next few days. While Mucho made his way with the best of intentions to represent the South Korean situation to Washington, Acheson sent the final approved version of the Mutual Defense Assistance Program for South Korea for the fiscal year of 1950 to Seoul. Incredibly, not only would the program cover just $10 million worth of spending, half the size of the sum which General Roberts and Ambassador Mucho had both wanted, but the monies wouldn't even arrive in the country until the fiscal year of 1951. This was simply too much for another figure of America's government in South Korea, the American Charge d'Affaires, who was clearly not clued in to what the actual plan in Washington was. He wrote to Acheson in response to the news, saying that, Korea now faced with a condition of materially lessened US military supplies with new flow not coming in significant amounts for nine months versus enemy force north of parallel which periodic reports put at increasing military potential. General Roberts and I request that you do everything in your power to speed dates of delivery of mutual defense assistance program materials especially of critical items such as vehicle and weapons spare parts, powder and primers. Incredibly enough, not only did Acheson blithely ignore this alarming report, he also began a policy of unofficial radio silence. That's right guys, from the moment Acheson sent this report of funding that South Korea could expect on the 20th of April until the outbreak of war on the 25th of June 1950, the United States' Secretary of State didn't engage once with the question of urgent military aid with the Seoul government. The sole piece of communication that the Secretary of State's office sent to Seoul was on the 13th of June, and this was to inquire about a comment made by some irrelevant issue to do with embassy staffing, and it was only seven lines long. Acheson was evidently determined to shut his eyes to what went on in Seoul, and not to humour the South Korean government any longer with promises to investigate or regulate aid. It was the twilight era of the American governance in the Republic of Korea. And since he now knew just how prepared the North was, Acheson likely anticipated an attack from the North in due course. By the time that the South Korean can, which had been so repeatedly kicked down the road, had been found, a war on the Korean peninsula, Acheson imagined, would be in play. 
This cynical, shocking policy line coincides with what we've learned of Acheson and the Truman administration, which he served by this point. To me, it also provides ample proof of the theory that America wanted the conflict in Korea to erupt for its own reasons. Yet Acheson also knew that he would first have to meet with Ambassador Mucho, who was himself returning from his post in South Korea to explain the position of the Seoul government. In the next episode, we'll resume our story from Mucho's arrival in Washington to see whether that faithful public servant would be able to appeal to Acheson's senses or if Mucho himself would even sense that something was not quite right. Until then though, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the Korean War episode 15. Thanks for listening my lovely patrons and history friends and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.